Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Oh, if we ever do any good in our work, it must be the effect of love for God and love for men. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon by Andrew Fuller. It was preached in England in the late 1700s. Big shout out to John for joining us over on Patreon. Thank you so much, John, for allowing us to keep making this type of content. How are you doing today, Troy? We're very busy, Joel, as we are getting ready to move and a bunch of things that that entails. And I normally am uh, doing these recordings in a small little like wardrobe and Mm. the wardrobe is very empty today. So it's kind of different. Also, I need to upload a picture of what we've been recording in at some point. I think you guys would be (laughs) entertained by how incredibly ghetto our setup is. So maybe look for that. If you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, check out what we've been recording and get a good laugh at our recording situation for the past year. Uh, And we're covering Andrew Fuller today, Joel. Andrew Fuller is an incredibly uh, busy person, person who worked hard and who has a real heart for the gospel, heart for the lost. If you remember, we did a not too long ago episode of Revived Conversations where we talk about how just how much people used to work and had no excuses. And I feel like Andrew Fuller really falls into that category of just another example from church history of someone who just gave it their all and kept pushing themselves all the way to the end. I think is a convicting challenge to many of us living today. Yeah, Andrew Fuller. I like Fuller. He's very much like a behind-the-scenes type of guy. He was doing a lot of stuff. You know, he's he's not a spotlight type of guy. He doesn't take all the glory and the credit for being that public face, but um, as we'll talk about, it's pretty undeniable that he was very instrumental in seeing a lot of people come know the Lord, um, kind of in a support missions role, which um, I personally am really fond of, and, and, you know, I, I... I value the importance of people that work behind the scenes to help missions work happen more effectively. And Fuller definitely fits that uh, that definition there. Yeah. He really does. And uh, he reminds me of D.E. Host. If you remember an episode yeah. we did a, f- a few months ago, D.E. Host was very similar. So if you like this episode, go check him out. He was the uh, person who replaced Hudson Taylor. And he also been quite forgotten in history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrew Fuller, born in 1754. In a small town in England, uh, his parents, he comes from a farmer family. His parents were farmers, dairy farmers. And uh, at the age of seven, they moved all the way to the town next door, which was about two and a half miles away, which doesn't sound like that farm. But, uh, and, you know, in an era before cars and motorcycles, trying to move a house two and a half miles um, can be difficult. You know, that, that, that that's at least a full day's work, if not multiple days' work. But in this next town over... Uh, there was a, a small, particular Baptist movement at works. Again, this is mid-1700s. 
so we're seeing these, yeah, uh, Protestant uh, movements taking root throughout the land. Uh, so Fuller's dad, parents, joined up with this church, and when he was about 15 or 16, he began to feel a heavy conviction over his sin, and he came to know the Lord in this small Baptist uh, church there. 1771, the pastor that was in charge of that small Baptist church, he moved to a different town, and Fuller joined other men in filling that pulpit, and he did that for four years until he eventually found himself uh, nominated and settling in as the head pastor of that church. So he was a man that he was never formally trained. You know, he kind of was raised into it, uh, learned from people around him, filled the pulpit, uh, eventually, uh, you know, establishing that reputation, that foundation, uh, taking that head pastor position, but completely self-taught. During this time he was serving as pastor, he also began to have a bit of a theological change. At the time, what was some what is called sometimes high Calvinism was kind of in full swing. It was very popular during this time. And high Calvinism is a type of Calvinism that emphasizes the sovereignty of God. But it, it's so much so that basically, and if I can sum it up, and I hope no high Calvinist gets mad at me, but uh, it's something basically to the effect of like, you know, God is going to save those who he's going to save. So you don't really need to evangelize because that would be putting the work on yourself and that doesn't work. So God's going to save whoever's going to save. So you just focus on God, if that makes sense. And, I, and I'm sure that was an absolutely terrible sum up, but that's basically what was in full swing at the time. And Fuller's predecessor to that church that he had been involved with said that was kind of his way of thinking, that when he asked him, what would you say to the unconverted? He was like, I wouldn't really have much to say to them. God will convert those who he's going to convert, and those he's not, he's not, and that's basically on them, and it's just, there's nothing you can do about it. And Fuller didn't like that. He basically was kind of like, no, look, we are called as Christians to share the gospel. And yes, God is in charge of people getting saved. But at the same time, we're supposed to be doing, we're supposed to be preaching and teaching. The unconverted are supposed to be presented the gospel. And we should have a heart for the lost. We should have a heart for people who are uh, destined for hell. And we should be trying to teach them and preach them and get them the gospel with everything inside of us. And the reason I'm being a little, I'm trying to be, you know, careful, but also explain this is because this is still a viewpoint that's around today. I have met people who still hold to uh, the high Calvinism. So it has not gone away completely. It's still something in our day and age. And I think Fuller has the right idea here that we are supposed to be preaching and teaching and telling people about Jesus with the idea that, you know, there will be people getting saved all through the way. So Fuller decided that the basically the better way was the way that was kind of the older way. He saw the Puritans and people that kind of came from the Reformation as more aligning with his way of share the gospel as much as you can with the unsaved and call them to repentance. This, you will see, is what led him in 1792 joining with a few others, a small group, to form the Baptist Missionary Society. I think it's kind of incredible because Baptists weren't that big yet. You know, we think of Baptists, you, have to, you put it in your mind, if you're living in the United States of America, but even if you're not in England, uh, Baptist is a huge, huge movement around the world. But at this time, it was very, very small. And a small group of them are getting together saying, you know, the Baptist Missionary Society should be sending missionaries to the world. This was still very young. The Baptists were still coming together. They've been around for a, a while, but they were, not, they were not nearly as big as they are today and as influential as they are today. And so coming together, a group of them just saying, you know, no formal heads of state. This wasn't like the big president stepping down, but just a group of them saying, hey, we're going to get this missionary society going between us because we love the lost and we want them to hear the gospel is a pretty big deal. 
He believed that to be faithful Christians, they had to preach and send missionaries to those people who are lost. And that the first missionary they sent, the very first one they sent about a year, less than a year later. And a personal friend of Fuller's, whose name is William Carey. Yes, William Carey, often called the father of missions. Uh, today's episode's not about William Carey, it's about Andrew Fuller, but they are very much connected. William Carey, the father of missions, uh, he served in India for over 40 years. He inspired hundreds to follow him there, uh, but yet William Carey describes his relationship with Andrew Fuller as, quote, I would go into the pit if he were to hold the ropes. And uh, that's what we see Fuller doing. He held the ropes by running the missionary society back in Britain. He traveled across the islands of Britain, raising money, writing pamphlets, encouraging workers to go and or give. In the early days of missionaries, these missionary societies raised support for the missionaries. So people like William Carey, uh, you know, the, the the concept of like tent making, of like working and su- supporting yourself financially while doing missions in the mission field, that really wasn't a huge model at this moment it was it was where people would raise funds so that you could work full-time and throw everything you have into evangelizing and you know talking to everyone without having to worry about um, making money on your own and so uh, they relied heavily on people back home raising funds for them to buy food with and you know pay the bills with and so andrew fuller kind of spearheaded a lot of that uh, support raising which is hard work And he was good at it. Yeah, it goes even to the fact that, you know, today you might have missionaries come to your church or somewhere asking for funds. And William Carey and them did not have to worry about that because they had uh, Andrew Fuller and others back at the home mission doing that. I would be remiss if we did an episode talking so much about William Carey without mentioning that. We have a show called Martyrs and Missionaries. And although Elise has not yet done the life story of William Carey because it is huge, she has done the life story of his son, Felix Carey, who has not gotten as much play. So definitely go check that out as well. Add that to your list after the host of things to check on. All right. Fuller served the Missionary Society. He was holding the ropes for Carey until he died in 1814. Now, this may not sound like it was a lot of work, but this actually was a lot of work. It would take him away from home around three months out of the year. He would be traveling just to raise support for the Missionary Society. That doesn't include extensive letter giving. One person estimated close to 10 hours a day. He was writing letters, writing papers, writing articles, writing things that would be published that would raise funds or raise awareness of the Missionary Society. On top of speech giving and all the rest, meeting with the missionaries, discipling them, all of that. But his love for the lost and his love for missionaries that were going, as he had a close relationship with many of them, propelled him forward. Fuller did more than missionary work, though. He was responsible for writing books that attacked some of the biggest heresies of that time. Socinianism, I don't think I said that quite right, but is a non-Trinitarian, almost Unitarian idea that has spread out of the many Reformed churches that were once in Poland and was spreading in Europe at the time. This big Unitarian, everyone's going to be saved, or you can worship God however you want, and blah, 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 was a really big thing. He would write about that, but even bigger than that at the time was, and I, I this is definitely the hardest heresy we have to say on the show, Sandemanianism. No, no, I missed it. Sandemanianism. There we go. Sandemanianism, the most difficult heresy to pronounce in this show. <laughs> and it's this idea that the Christian faith is a mostly intellectual one. It doesn't really apply to our lives as long as you intellectually consent to it and think the right thoughts and think about it in a good way you're fine and you're following God. And that in actuality, 
Um, the real problem is people who try to force it on you. Kind of, They hate legalism. They hate the Pharisees that tell people what to do. And they're all about just thinking the right thoughts. Uh, we did an episode on this before, this heresy, with Christmas Evans. It's really good. He got totally wrapped up in it for a few years. And they said breaking out of it was like a light shining on him. It was a really cool one. Uh, go check out that one, Christmas Evans, The Triumph of Calvary. And yet, at the time, this was, I mean, it, they're both living in the same era in the early 1800s. This was a really big deal. It was a big heresy. It still is a big heresy. I think as you hear it described, you might think to yourself, hey, that's still kind of around today, too. Yeah, it's easy to think uh, that, you know, have this mentality that back then everyone was Christian. You know, everyone was in the Christian movement. But there were a lot of big controversies, a lot of big problems that, that people addressed uh, this the Sandian Sandian Minianism. <laughs> Sandianianism. Oh my gosh. Sa- it's so Sandiminianianism. Yeah. We need a that, new name, yeah. guys. Let's just <laughs> <laughs> that being that being one of the the you know an example of a good issue that was at the time and um you know Troy and I were talking about it. It seems like it's almost a natural byproduct of high Calvinism, right? When uh, high Calvinism saying, hey, people that are going to get saved are going to get saved no matter what. Uh, you know, there's no need to go out and evangelize these people. Uh, kind of in the same way, uh, this this uh, approach to intellectual faith, I say in air quotes, is, you know, we, uh, as, as long as we understand what's right, you know, we, we got the right vibes, we understand uh, these affirming the right ideas, um, the actions don't really matter so much. You know, you can see the connection there. Uh, from one to the other. And again, we might not be getting that 100%, right? I'm sure someone's probably typing out a big email to give us, um, but that's the gist of it. I just think it's interesting that, you know, I think of Solomon, you know, and there being nothing new under the sun. Uh, it's really fascinating to go through church history and just see that, you know, the, it, it, the church from the beginning has always, they, they've, they've, had discussions about everything that we have discussions about now. Everyone in our current generation thinks that they are so smart and they're so bold and you know they 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 talk about these theological concepts like they're the first person that's ever thought about that. And no, I mean it's it's been thought people have gone through this exact same cycle. It happens every couple hundred years. It's it's already been discussed and talked about. Uh, and that's what's neat about church history. We can go back and look at examples where other people have had these conversations and these thoughts. No, I, I'm actually really glad you said that because I, I think that this one, the Sandemanianism, and I really think we need to give it a, I think it would be a lot catchier if we gave it a new name. <laughs> but I really think this is alive and well today. I think there, are, I've met people who, when I read this about this heresy, I, I, I can't help but flash back to conversations and things I've seen in my life, and I go, mm-hmm. I feel like I know people who are walking this road where they have intellectually checked off all the right boxes, but it doesn't apply to their heart or their actions, but they're like, they don't see a need for it too. Because like, you know, where I'm, I'm saying nothing matter. I've, I've already affirmed it all mentally. God has got me saved, so I can do whatever I want. And also I'm thinking the right thoughts, so it's gonna be fine, but they don't wanna apply it to their heart, go after sin in their own life, live for holiness, any of those kind of things. And I think it can become a, a real problem when you overly intellectualize the faith without bringing the heart along for the ride, if that makes sense. Hmm. Totally. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. 
when he was not raising support for missionaries or writing books attacking the big heresies of the day. And by the way, we're not even able to really cover full story of Andrew Fuller. He had a huge impact on the Baptist church and his books and writings would be a big deal to them. So we're just kind of running through here. But uh, he also was running a church. We forget that many of these guys, while doing these great things, are also running their own churches. His church went, numbers-wise, they were like, it doubled in attendance, but it went from 88 to 174. But when I dug around a little bit more, that was members of the church. He actually had 1,000 people attending, but only 174 of them would be considered members. Not quite sure what that was about. But they had to enlarge the building he was in. He served pretty much the same church for 33 years or so, uh, which is itself a feat in a way. And sadly, in 1793, right around the same time they sent out William Carey, he suffered a stroke, which caused him to have almost constant severe headaches and migraines and other difficulties. And even worse, his health declined a lot in 1799. Um, His last 15 or 16 years, he was pretty much always sick. Yet despite that, he preached, taught, wrote, and continued to serve relentlessly till the end of his days. He was so busy at one point that his wife pointed out he never made time for recreation. He never took breaks. He never played. And he responded that by changing what he's working on, that was recreation enough. What are you talking about? I switched from the Missionary Society to writing, you know, tomorrow's sermon. That's play. I've changed it up. (laughs) You know, and we have talked about these kind of hardworking men in the past. And like many of them, he suffered the same fate where they would work themselves quite literally into the grave. He died at the age of 62. It's a little bit younger, although to be honest, at that time and that life, that, you know, that age of 1862 wasn't that young. It was pretty average. Yeah. So we're going to have to do another episode about Andrew Fuller because we are just scratching the surface. There's a lot that we can dive into uh, about his life. There's different eras, different vignettes, things that would be neat to to center an episode around. He was uh, friends with William Wilberforce, helped him fight against the slave trade. He also wrote a bunch of articles lobbying against the East India Trading Company. He also had to fight against attacks on missions work. Some people believed that it was intolerant to try to convert others or to condemn ritual sacrifices associated with Hinduism. Others complained that missionary efforts led to a mutiny and that it was a sign that they shouldn't be doing that type of work. Any one of these we could break out into its its full episode, but um, lots of lots of writings of his, lots of books and articles uh, defending the conversion work of of the society, of that missions organization there. And it may be an exaggeration, but all the work that Fuller did at that society uh, had one biographer saying he lived and he died a martyr for the mission. Oftentimes, uh, William Carey and Hudson Taylor, they get all the applause. They have all their work studied uh, by other missionaries, but the people back home are often doing a lot of that work as well. And Andrew Fuller exemplifies that work clearly. This sermon that we're about to listen to, uh, it's Fuller preaching a sermon at the ordination of a young minister. And he's he's teaching this uh, young pastor that's being ordained at this time. He's giving him advice on what he will need to be successful. In speaking to you, my brothers, on this serious occasion, I will not undertake so much as to communicate anything new, so much as to remind you of what you already know and have felt already. You are aware that there are two main objects to be obtained in the work of the Christian ministry, enlightening the minds and affecting the hearts of the people. These are the usual means by which the work of God is accomplished. Let me remind you 
that in order to attain these objects, you yourself must be under their influence. If you would enlighten others, you must also be a shining light yourself. And if you would affect others, you yourself must feel it. Your own heart must burn with holy passion, and you must be a burning and shining light. It is not enough that you should be what is called a popular preacher. A man may have many gifts so as to shine in the eyes of the masses almost as bright as he does in his own eyes, and yet possess little or nothing of spiritual light, light the tendency of which is to transform the heart. So also a man may burn with zeal as Jehu did, and yet have little or no true love for God, or affection for the souls of men. Spiritual light and holy love are the qualities which Christ here commends. You will give your full attention, my brothers, while I attempt to remind you of the need of each of these in the different parts of your important work in the great work of preaching the gospel, in presiding in the church, in visiting your people, and in your whole demeanor through life. In the great work of preaching the gospel, oh my brother, in this department we must resemble the living creatures mentioned by Ezekiel, full of eyes. We almost need, in one view, to be made up of pure intellect, to be all light. I will not attempt to decide how much knowledge is necessary of men and things of past and present times, of the church and the world, but will stick to two or three things. First, how necessary it is to understand to some good degree the holy character of God. It is this to which you will find that men in general are blind. They imagine God as if he were such a one as themselves, and here they fancy they are not enemies to him. You will have to point out the true character of God so that the sinner may see his own inadequacy and not have the hatred in his heart hidden from his own eyes. A just view of the holy character of God will also be one of the best preservatives against error in other respects. Almost all the errors in the world proceed from ignorance of the true character of God. To what else can be attributed the errors of Socianism, Arianism, and Antinomianism? From degraded views of God's character arise lesser notions of the evil of sin, of its justified punishments, and of our lost condition, and of our need of a great Savior. And then of the work of the Spirit. O oh, brothers, may you give off, off this light with untainted shine, and in order to do this, speak often with God in private, since there is no way of knowing the true character of another so well as by personal, private discussion. Second, a knowledge of Christ as the mediator between God and man is necessary. This is life eternal, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. Here also men are greatly ignorant, 
He is in the world, and the world does not know him. It must be our concern as ministers to know him, and comparatively speaking, to know nothing else. And so we may pass along the knowledge of him to others. The glory of Christ's character is such that if he were to be viewed in a true light and not through the false mediums of prejudice and the love of sin, but through the mirror of the gospel, he must be loved. Here, my brother, we need to be intimately acquainted with Christ, that we may be able on all occasions to give a just portrait of his character, that we may be able to tell of his dignity, his love, the generous principles of his achievement, and how nobly he executed the great enterprise. Third, a knowledge of human nature as created is necessary. We will be unskilled workers unless we are acquainted with the materials on which we have to work. It is not more necessary for a surgeon or a doctor to understand the anatomy of the human body than it is for ministers to understand that we may call the anatomy of the soul. In particular, we must be very careful to distinguish between primary and criminal passions. God habitually addresses the first, and so should we, but not the second. The second is only the abuse of the principles implanted in our nature. To be more explicit, God has created us with the love of possession, but the excess of this love becomes envy and idolatry. God has implanted within us a principle of achievement, but the abuse of this is pride and ambition. God has created us with the love of pleasure, but this indulged to excess becomes sensuality. Now, the word of God will not appeal to our corrupted desires, but the word of God is full of appeals to those principles of our nature in which we are created. For example, in his word, God addresses himself to our love of possession and points to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that never fades away. To the principle of achievement, the Bible presents to our view a crown. And to our love of pleasures, it informs us that in his presence there is full of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And in short, in the same way, he addresses the principles of zeal, love, hatred, shame, fear, revenge, and so must we. Fourth, a knowledge of human nature as depraved is necessary. Without this knowledge, we will be unable to trace and detect the workings of a wicked heart. Sin is a deceitful thing, and we are apt to be influenced by its tricky names. Stinginess is called frugality. Overspending is called generosity. Bitterness of spirit in rebuking is called discipline. And resentment is called a passionate spirit. We need, therefore, to know the root of the disease and the various ways in which it operates. In order to effect a cure, the knowledge of the disease is indispensable. And in order to attain to this knowledge, we must study the various symptoms 
by which the disorder may be recognized. Fifth, a knowledge of human nature as sanctified by the Spirit is necessary. Without this, we will be unable to trace the work of God in the soul and unable to fan the gentle flame of divine love in the genuine Christian and to to detect and expose the various counterfeits. You will also need, my brother, a heart warmed with divine things, or you will never be a burning and shining light. When we are thinking or preaching, we need to burn as well as shine. When we study, we may rack our brains and form plans, but unless our hearts burn within us, all will be a mere skeleton. Our thoughts become only the bones. Whatever their number, they will be all dry, very dry. And if we do not feel what we say, our preaching will be poor, dead work. Affected zeal will not do. A gilded fire may shine, but it will not warm. We may smite with the hand and stamp with the foot and throw ourselves into violent convulsions. But if we do not feel, it is not likely the people will. Unless, indeed, it is a feeling of disgust. But suppose there be no affection, nor any deficiency of good and sound doctrine. Yet, if in our work we feel no inward satisfaction, we will resemble a millstone preparing food for others, the value of which we are unable to appreciate ourselves. Indeed, without feelings, we will be incapable of preaching any truth or performing any duty rightly. How can we display the evil of sin, the love of Christ, or any other important truth unless we feel it? How can we preach against sin without feeling a holy indignation against it? It is this that will cause us, while we denounce sin, to weep over the sinner. Otherwise, we may deal in flings and personalities, but these will only irritate. They will never reclaim. Oh, if we ever do any good in our work, it must be the effect of love for God and love for men. Love for the souls of men while we detest and expose and denounce their sins. How could Paul have pursued his work with the passion and intensity which he showed if his heart had not burned with holy love? Spiritual light and holy love are equally necessary in presiding in the church of God. Wisdom and love are necessary calmly to lay down the rules of discipline, to solve difficult questions, to prepare and digest in agreement with the deacons such matters that are to be laid before the church, to nip little differences and divisions in the bud, to meditate between contending rivalries. My brother, think of the example of the Lord Jesus, who in his speech with the disciples saluted them with this benediction, peace, be with you. The great art of presiding in a church so as to promote its welfare is to be neutral between the members. For you are always on the side of God and righteousness. 
and to let them see that whatever your opinion may be, you really love them. These qualities are necessary in the more private duty of visiting the people. A considerable part of the pastoral office consists in visiting the people, especially the afflicted. Paul could appeal to the elders of the church at Ephesus that he had taught them publicly and from house to house. It is of great consequence that in your pastoral visits you should preserve the character of a burning and shining light. Pastoral visits should not degenerate into religious gossiping, a practice in which some have indulged to the disgrace of religion. Unused to habits of reflection, they feel no relish for solitude, and therefore, to employ the time which hangs so heavy on their heads, they go about to see their friends and to ask them how they are. And this is not even the worst. Satan promptly hooks them with the subject where one was lacking. And here, gossiping has generally produced tales of slander and practices which have proven to be a scandal to the Christian name. I trust, my brother, you know the preciousness of time too well squander it away in idle visits. And yet visiting is an essential part of your work that you may become acquainted with the circumstances, the spiritual necessity of your people. They will be able to share their feelings freely and without hesitation, and you will be able to administer the appropriate counsel to much better purpose than you possibly can from the pulpit and with greater specific help than would be becoming in a public address. Only let us burn while we shine. Let us savor of Christ accompany all our instructions. A minister who maintains an upright, affectionate conduct may say almost anything in a way of just rebuking without giving offense. Spiritual light and holy love are necessary in your demeanor through life. May you, my brother, shine in holy wisdom and burn with ardent love. You will need them wherever you go. In whatever you engage in, that you may walk as one of the children of light. Allow me to point out a few things which I have found of use to conduce to these ends. Read the lives of good men. The lives of such men as God has distinguished for gifts and graces and usefulness. Example has a great influence. The scriptures abound with such examples. And blessed be God, we have some now. Study the word of God above all other books and pray over it. It will set hearts on fire. Read men as well as books and your own heart in order that you may read others. Those who copy, you know, are generally no good. There is nothing that equals what is taken immediately from life. We need to always be taking notes of things in life wherever we are or wherever we go. If we get a system of human nature or experience or anything else from books rather than from our own knowledge, it will be open to two disadvantages. First, it is not likely to be as near to the truth. For systems which go through several hands are like successive copies of a painting and every copy of the preceding one is more unlike the original. 
or like the telling of a tale, the circumstances of which you do not know of your own personal knowledge, yet every time it is repeated, there is some variation, and so it becomes further removed from the truth. So Agrippa showed his wisdom when, instead of depending on the testimony of others, he determined to hear Paul himself. Secondly, if it is correct, still it will not be so serviceable to you as if it were a system of your own working. Saul's armor might be better than David's sling, but not to him, seeing he had not worn it. Live the life of a Christian as well as of a minister. Read as one, preach as one, converse as one who is to be profited as well as to profit others. One of the greatest temptations of ministerial life is to handle divine truth as a minister rather than as a Christian. To do it for others rather than for ourselves. But the word will not profit them that preach it any more than it will them that hear it unless it be mixed with faith. If we study the scriptures as Christian, the more familiar we are with them, the more we will feel their importance. But if our object is only to find out something to say to others, our familiarity with them will prove a snare. It will resemble the way of soldiers, doctors, and gravediggers with death. The more familiar we are with them, the less we will feel their importance. Commune with God in private. Walking with God in quiet place is a grand tool with his blessing of illuminating our minds and warming our hearts. When Moses came down from the mount, his face shone bright and his heart burned with zeal for the honor of God and the good of his people. Alas, alas, when you do not have this. Jeremiah 10, 21. The shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord, so they do not prosper, and all their flock is scattered. Hold out the word of life, not only by rules, but by holy practice. Let your light so shine before men that they, seeing your good works, may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Without this, in vain will be all our attempts to be burning and shining lights. My dear brother, allow me to conclude with an earnest prayer, that you may long continue a burning and shining light to this church, and that after turning many to righteousness, you may shine as a distinguished star in the heavens forever and ever. I love this sermon. I really just think that Fuller exempl- I mean, he is a great example of what the sermon is talking about. He's giving this ordination charge to ministers, but I think it, if you listen to this and said, oh, I'm not a minister, so I'm exempt. You're not. This is a great way to live your life. Um, but he's basically saying, holy knowledge, you must be pursuing spiritual knowledge, and you must be pursuing holy love. And I think that that is something we all tend to struggle with, right? Do I pursue knowledge or do I just pursue love? And how do I blend those two things? And Fuller saying both of them 
He had a heart for the lost. You can see his love for people. And yet you can also see from his writings and his attacks on heresies, he had great knowledge of spiritual things. I think he calls us all to live that same way where we're pursuing uh, a greater and deeper knowledge and relationship with God and his word. And yet we're also not losing our heart for the lost and our heart for people and our heart to serve God and love others wherever we are. And when we combine those two things, That's not only what makes us good ministers, but for all Christians, that is what makes you a good follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Plez Evans. He has been married for 10 years and has two kids. He lives in Texas and is fostering to adopt. He works in the cement industry, and he says he loves reading Puritans and Reformers and other old theologians and pastors. Big thanks to uh, Plez for narrating the sermon, a new narrator on the Revive Thoughts lineup. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. If you enjoy Revive Studios content, we ask you to please join us on Patreon. We have people joining, like John did, uh, all the time, and we appreciate when you do. Not only do you help us run the studio and continue to do more work, but you also uh, receive some goodies, some thank yous from us. You get access to our full deep dives. We've done a deep dive on the Salem Witch Trials, an hour and a half of very good content and also the First Crusade and Joan of Arc. And we have a Ethiopian deep dive coming very soon. Once Elise and I are all settled in we, from where we're heading, we should be able to get going on that. And also you will receive uh, some other things from us as well. The bookmarks and uh, the, the depending on what tier you join in, depends on kind of what you get, but you'll get also access to ad-free listening, all kinds of good things. So go check out the Patreon page, find out what we can give you, and, and we can also uh, continue to grow our studio and do more things because of those of you who have joined us there. So thank you very much. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.